When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I blame Gary Neville personally. If only he hadn't been so bloody definitive in his, in his initial reaction to the Saudi Omane red card. We could have all had a nice long reasoned debate about it without the whole thing descending into a polarizing, vitriolic social media brawl. Because usually these things end up being quite reasoned, don't they? Yeah, Hello and welcome to Monday Second Captain's Podcast. Football podcast it is. Hi Ken, I'm Murph. Hello there, you. You got personally abused yourself on no, I was called a clown, Murph. You were called a clown. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that as bad as it got? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Okay. It's just when a load of stuff starts coming at you at the same time. And this was when, when you you were um, squealing that Mane should be thrown out of the game for something like that. Well, I most certainly wasn't, Ken. So Neville and Martin Tyler, for that matter. Why did Martin Tyler got very opinionated during this passage. I'm not sure why he needed to add his tuppence worth. But they seemed totally aghast at the idea that a player could get sent off for, you know, landing his studs in the face of an opposition player, even if he didn't mean to do it, prompting yours truly to tweet... What is it's another it? verbal broadside, I'm Go afraid, on, Ken. Us, Gird your loins. What is Neville on about? It doesn't matter that his eyes are on the ball, in inverted commas. His studs are in the goalkeeper's face. Oh. Whoa. That's that's laying it out there, Owen. Uh, that tweet what? caught the internet like Mane's boot in his <laughs> face. What, what do you make of this ratio, uh, Ken? Mm. Uh, 175 likes. Yeah. That's good. 22 retweets. That's good. 75 replies. Mm, you don't want that. It's quite a lot of replies. Yeah. Francis McCullough, what are you on about? His foot never touched the goalkeeper, you clown. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well, I mean, that the, has an age not well. directly. There was a boot in between. <laughs> yeah, I suppose his foot. His yeah. sheathed yeah, yeah, yeah. foot. Yeah. yeah. Sock as well, I mean. Uh, taster miles away from it. Of some of the other lines of attack, Nat Fuller. Yeah, Nat Fuller on. replied a couple of times to me. Did he? Eyes on the ball, and there was unintentional contact with the goalkeeper. Sorry, but these things happen. Contact sport. Mm-hmm. I got quite a lot of that. But my answer to that would be, why bother having any rules? Mm. If it's contact sport and any contact's okay, let's go. to Kenneth Carr, if you think that's a red, well, then the game is dead. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one of yeah. those. Uh, Wolfpack, does, does he have to pull out and not go for the ball then? Yes, we my answer to that. 
and do it, will it not go for the ball? Yeah. Scott Delahunty, but Ederson was going in with a diving header, <laughs> which is a, which is an exaggerated version of what he dove a, upwards yeah, towards the ball. He smashed his did. face into Mane's boot. He 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 was lunging down ever so slightly. I mean, he's still a six foot two, roughly a six foot two inch goalkeeper, so his head was still at a reasonable height. I would have thought reasonably high height. That is when he got got stitched in the face, but uh, no intent. That and that's why. There's no calls, but he's got to be banned for a year or anything like that. Mm. But I think a red card was fairly a bit of a no-brainer. So now that you've been, um, you, you've experienced this baptism of fire. Well, baptism of fire makes it sound as though it's something that's only happened for the first time. But you know, his Twitter account is still active. <clears throat> I've checked. I, I thought maybe he might walk away. You've taken this blast of white hot internet rage. Mm. Do you feel more or less wedded to your original viewpoint after that experience? More wedded. More wedded, absolutely. Yeah, more How wedded. could anyone ever possibly have thought that this <laughs> wasn't a red card? Here, do you, you have you got his Twitter feed up in front of you? Yeah, I do, yeah. Is he, is he ranting and raving at any point about uh, Matt Ritchie? Matt Ritchie? Because all we're looking for is consistency. Okay, uh, I'll just, I'll just search Matt, Matt Ritchie. Does Matt Ritchie spell it with a T in the middle? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Matt Ritchie on Alfie Mawson. M A W S O N. Now I'm assuming no results for Matt Ritchie on McDevitt. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Did he just say Ritchie Mawson? Yeah, I'll tr- I'll just I'll try Ritchie. All we want is consistency. That's all yeah. we're looking for in this in this when game. Owns misspelled Ritchie Sadler. No, he hasn't. There's still no results for Ritchie and on McDevitt. Is there a chance I was doing other things over the course of the weekend <laughs> than watching every <laughs> Premier League game? Can there's a small chance. Well, okay, um, fair enough. Uh, uh, I do think that it was a red card for Manny. I think it's kind of uncontroversial at this stage. I don't know why Jurgen Klopp thinks that the FA are going to rescind that. Uh, as he's, I mean, he was he was saying afterwards, "No, we're not going to appeal." You know, I don't want to do that. I, I just I, hope I like they it, do the right uh, thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they they're not going to do anything. I'd be amazed if they did, um, given that there's plenty of opinion uh, that, in fact, it was the right decision. They're not in the habit, I think, of undermining referees' decisions unless they absolutely have to, you know, unless it's an obvious, you know, cock up by the referee, which this one isn't. So um, it did it did ruin the game, but unfortunately that's sometimes what happens when players are punished for dangerous play. I've heard rumours that some people listening to us right now are not members of the Second Captain's World Service. Can you believe this? It's lies on. It's lies. Well, I don't no. believe it. I refuse to believe it. Clearly they hate independent member-led journalism for just five euro a month plus fat. And just last week, they would have missed a new record being broken. The most hungover-sounding man to ever appear on air with us. The new champ, Galway All-Ireland winner, all-round good guy, Johnny Glynn, joined us last Tuesday. And that's it, no balloons. I'm not too far off. Yeah. <laughs> the, vo- the, voice is, the voice is sounding a little weak there, Johnny. It started well, Johnny. The voice started okay. And I, I feel bad now for doing this to you. Where it's going to be gone by the end of this phone call. I know, you're fine, no, you don't, you don't. <laughs> I know, my voice goes like this. I, f- I feel a bit bad now for playing that clip a week later after he was so good to take the call. No, don't don't worry about that, he's fine. fine. You also my out- voice is always like this. Is He's tr- he's trying to make you feel better, on yeah. by saying that. I mean, his voice is quite, you know, husky, but it's not... It's not that husky. That's all I'm saying. You also missed out on the best Serbia-Ireland analysis and the Owen, you're amazing guy, Luke Jensen, was back on. Luke, great to chat to you again. Oh, any time for Ireland. Anything, any time. Did he call me amazing? Owen, oh, you're amazing. No. Well, you'll just have to join. Join up to find out. US Murph. 
Countdown to the All-Ireland Football Final, Champions League dedicated football show and a new player's chair all coming up this week. Plenty there for football show listeners. So come on and get on board with us. Go to secondcaptains.com, become a member, get your second captain's badge and get listening. Now report on sport, please, Ken. So I don't know if you saw during the week there, um, there was a story about plastic. Uh, plastic in the environment. I mean, you know, plastic obviously is not a naturally occurring mm-hmm. substance. You know, we make it up out of oil and whatnot. Tiny micro crystals are doing all the damage, Ken. Have you? Have you seen? Well, it's oh, not just. It's not it's just tiny major, micro crystals. It's a major bugbear of uh, my friend and second captain's world service member, Claire Henderson. Yeah, well, the, the, obviously the, the the micro crystals. These are the micro beads that you put that you find in like uh, shower gel and stuff. Which created that nice mm, tingling scrub on your skin when you massage them into your skin. Um, turns out they're, you know, they all go straight into the sea and into the, you know, reproductive systems of fish and whatnot. And go, you know, God knows what the what's going to happen. But it's not just that. It's also the fact that apparently all plastic breaks down into this sort of plastic microparticles, which are not biodegradable in any sort of in any relevant way for the human lifespan. You know, they, they're around for a long, long time. But they're also chemically active, Owen. They leach out all kinds of chemicals. And they're basically in everything. They're in, you know, water, beer. In fact, a lot of it comes from bottles for bottled water, I guess. They're, they're basically, these things are just everywhere. We, and we have no idea what the consequences are going to be. We just don't know. We're five, five years from uh, total uh, micro-bead cataclysm. Yeah, well, it's everywhere. It's 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 got into everything. These things they they get into you, and and they leach out uh, chemicals, and God knows what's going to happen. We're all really waiting with bated breath to find out what's going to happen. But this, when you have this saturation of this strange substance, it has unpredictable effects. And something like this, Owen, I believe, is happening in the Premier League. Something is happening in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Premier League saturation. Uh, has has gone way beyond saturation point with money. It's gone so far beyond saturation point that that we're now into a zone where nobody knows what the consequences. Nobody can really understand uh, just how this is all going to play out. But one thing that we are beginning to see is that this is having a seriously negative effect on the intelligence already low of English football. <laughs> right? English football. Is, is you know you remember the the whole British beef thing, you know maybe maybe some some people don't remember that. Um, there was a time when it turned out that uh, they were feeding all kinds of strange things to cows, other animals and stuff like that, which a cow isn't really supposed to be grinding up animals into sort of a paste, pouring you know some kind of fluids on it and then feeding that to your cattle. Turned out that a lot of them were going crazy. Uh, they, all this stuff was getting into the food chain, and it was causing a disease called bovine spongiform encephalitis, nice. BSE, well which in humans, once you ate this, uh, these uh, particular cows, uh, resulted in a neurodegenerative disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which was a, you know, really not a good way to uh, not a good way to go. Um, but something like that, like the Premier League, has got Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease from from having too much money now. And the example of what's just happened today with the sacking of Frank De Boer is just, oh my God. I just, it's, 
it's going to take us a while to get our heads around how stupid this event is. This, this is the stupidest event to happen in English football in a very long time. From the hiring of Frank de Boer by Steve Parrish, uh, right, from the, right from day one, their, their opening statements, Frank de Boer saying he wanted Crystal Palace to play like Ajax. That was a kind of a head-scratching moment. Steve Parrish saying, you know, he said some weird things about Palace fans. I don't think our fans are too bothered about our style. He said as he sat there next to Dutch football evangelist Frank de Boer, who he's just, like Dutch football ideologue Frank de Boer. I remember reading the a lot of the Guardian's preseason previews. You know, they were doing one each day or whatever in the few weeks coming up to the Premier League. And I found the Crystal Palace one hilarious. Mm. Because of that, it was already... You were looking at this going, oh no, this... It doesn't appear as though the manager has the full support of his owner, even at the unveiling of the manager as the manager. Day one. Or yeah. chairman, whatever it is, Steve Parrish. Parrish, uh, Parrish had just said that he, was, he, he wanted a long-term manager. He wanted to support the manager in the transfer market. Um, he's, he's young. He looks healthy. So I think he's not going to die on the job. So that's why we've hired him. He could be here for 45 years. <laughs> he could be here for, for, for now. It could be the next great Dutch football dynasty in Croydon. <laughs> um, Crystal Palace, but but uh, you know so 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 De Boer was coming out with all this you know Van Louis Van Hal type stuff about philosophies. Parish uh, was saying that um, we've we've got a style of play which we developed because it was less expensive and it's part of the DNA of the club. The style of play being fast counter-attacking football by strong athletic players. None of this finding it about right. He's they're sitting next to each other as they say these things, <laughs> um, and he also said that. Uh, you know, I don't think our fans are too... Uh, our fans, I don't think they're particularly fussed about the style of football we play. Our fans aren't too discerning. This is what Parrish, this is what Steve Parrish says. So, four games later, Frank de Boer sacked. Four Premier League games. They did beat Ipswich um, in between. Uh, the, uh, the results... Um, they had lost to uh, on the first day to Huddersfield, which wasn't good. They lost to Liverpool. Um, they lost most recently at Burnley, and the other one was a two 0 defeat at home to Swansea. So um, four defeats, no goals. But anyone who saw the game between Burnley and Palace, this is the, the one just yesterday, will will know how unlucky they were not to have scored a couple of goals in that one. I mean, it was an incredible miss by Scott Dan, who who was constantly popping up at set pieces, firing shots at goal, which were being cleared off the line. Um, they were the better team in, in that game. You know, they, they had a very, very... They were very unlucky to lose at Anfield when they, they lost 1-0. Mane eventually got a goal quite late in that game. It looked as though they were going to get a draw. Um, and you do wonder if those... Uh, if either of those results had gone the other way, or you know, a ball had gone in that in, that went six inches wide, would anything be different here? Um, but it, but that's not the world we're living in. The world we're living in is a world where Scott Dan misses and Frank de Boer is um, immediately sacked. Is there something about this that zero in the goals for Colum? If they had even scored a goal that didn't win them a point, might there? Be a bit more sympathy for Frank de Boer's position this morning. Not scoring goal when you're trying to Im- implement a new policy. Look, I think it's absolutely mental that he's been it's, sacked it's, after, after four days. I'm just trying to find some some crumb of comfort for those of us who still believe in Steve Parrish and his vision. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Parrish's vision. Yeah, I mean it's just incredible. Like this guy. 
I mean, I, Frank Tabor was the wrong appointment for Crystal Palace for the reasons sketched out by Steve Parrish as he sat next to Frank Tabor, introducing him as the new manager of Crystal Palace. This is not a team that plays IX, the Ajax way. That's not what Crystal Palace are or ever have been about. This is a team that, that has, whose last four managers are Ian Holloway, Tony Pulis, Alan Pardew, and Sam Allardyce. Mm-hmm. Like to, it's impossible to get more English football than those guys. You know, you cannot get more. That is that. That's those four guys between. Throw them. curbs in, and I think you've got the full. You, you shout bingo. Curbs is gone. These are this is the Matthew Mark, Luke, and John of English football management, right? Holloway with his offbeat comments and awful results. You know, Pulis, the Tony Pulis team. You know, a team that absolutely nobody wants to watch. A team that nobody even wants to play against. It's like, oh no, we have to play that. It's gonna. It's not gonna be good. Is there anything else I can do that day? Uh, Alan Pardew, you know, well, we know we know about Alan Pardew. Sam Allardyce, yeah, he, um, he took over after the uh, the whole England thing went, uh, went pear-shaped. You know, these are all very pragmatic. Well, apart from Pulis, who's a, who's a very romantic manager. But they're all very, um, uh, you know, n- none of them are philosophy managers. You know, you can imagine the sort of sideways glances there'd be, you know, if anyone says philosophy, you know, so why would you go for why would you go for Frank de Boer? It's such a crazy idea. And then av- having done that to 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 so weakly go back on your decision after four games is I think pathetic. And then top it all off by appointing Roy Hodgson. The 70-year-old Roy Hodgson who was last seen losing to Iceland at Euro 2016 a couple of days after after the Brexit referendum. This is who they think is going to be the, the right man to... It's certainly rather different from the manager that they appointed previously. Maybe Roy Hodgson, too, will be the long-term appointment that they were that they were looking for. Mm. But it's just... It's, it's absolutely incredible to me. Hodgson, really? Is this... This is the depth of your knowledge? Well, they probably just wanted Allardyce back as plan A. Yeah, but Allardyce quit because he's... For health reasons or whatever. I mean, Allardyce was there. I know, yeah. But I'd say in an ideal world... Clubs like Crystal Palace, who are happy enough with that side of football, know that Allardyce <laughs> is Allardyce is, is probably the best out there at, at getting results from that kind of stuff. How could anyone be happy with this with Roy Hodgson style of football? No, not Roy Hodgson. I, I meant with the Allardyce thing. Yeah, so so short of Allardyce, uh, and if they do want to what go, about maybe getting someone you know who's younger than seventy. I don't know English. They talk about English managers not not being given a chance, and they ah those new English managers though they're all a little bit. You know, they all like their possession and... They're a bit holistic. Flip, flip, flip charts and so on. Yeah. Sorry, that's not fair. Big Sam, of course, an early sports science advocate. It's just, it's just absolutely amazing to me. It's just... Uh, I think what, this, what, what, what it shows you is how stupid the Premier League is and how it's kind of trapped into being stupid. The reason that Parrish has done this is because he bottled, he bottled it, basically. He can't... He, knowing nothing, and at least, I suppose, he's got this self-insight to recognise that he knows nothing. It's not as though he, he's got the confidence in his own thought process to go, well, look, I took this decision for the following reasons. Those reasons still stand. The results have been bad, but I'm going to keep faith because this is going to work out. And I believe that. And I, I think I'm right because of this, this, and this. I've thought about this. It's like, you know, when Guardiola was, was the Barcelona manager first 
and did they lose the first two games or maybe didn't score in the first two games and immediately it was like oh why have we given the job to this clown he doesn't know you know how to manage a team he's only managed kids teams this is a joke how could Barcelona be entrusted to this guy and then you have uh, Johan Cruyff writing in the um, which I'm actually can't remember which paper he used to have the column in but saying uh, already the in the games that I've seen uh, Barcelona play under Guardiola uh, they've played better football than at any point in the last two seasons and they're going to be a great team with this man as manager. Just have faith. You know, but he he was in a position where he could say that and, it's, and, and people would believe him. He could believe himself because he actually knew what he was talking about. You know, he, he could say, look, this is going to work out for the following reasons. Where Steve Parrish is just a know-nothing guy who's panicking and, and is worried he's going to get relegated and lose tons of money. I saw him on transfer deadline day uh, so maybe what was that two games ago? Certainly one, maybe two games ago. And he was talking about any other possible transfers, usual stuff they're being asked about. And in passing, what about how Frank is going? Like it's 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 not looking good so far. And he's like, no, Frank knows it's all about results. It hasn't been good enough. And this is even like we hadn't even got to the four game point of the Premier League mm. season, and he was already basically saying about to sack him. You know, it's yeah. kind of it, it seemed like I don't know. Maybe something went on between the two of them, some sort of personal issue before the season started or a disagreement or something? Well, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, couldn't rule it out with Frank. I mean, with Frank de Boer, he, he always has been a, a touch on the arrogant side, I think. Even after his very first match as Palace when they lost to Huddersfield, his, his interview contained a line along the lines of, well, you know, it wasn't what we spoke about. So he was already sort of saying, well, look, they didn't do what I told them. You know what I mean? Which, and I was already looking at that thinking, well, that's, that's not... Uh, that's going to cause you problems in English football culture. I mean, I don't know how it is in in Holland. Maybe you can be a bit more direct that way, and people don't take it the wrong way. But the way you said that makes it sound as though, well, I've got all the answers, but you know, these clowns can't play football. That's the problem with this team, and that seems to be that 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 seems to be his attitude. But you've got you've got a situation situation there where Parish doesn't really know anything, is terrified of of being relegated, and has decided, okay, let's just change it. Let's just change it. Hodgson, Hodgson, he's a safe pair of hands. <laughs> he's a safe pair of hands. Like the worst. The, have you ever seen a worse England manager than Roy Hodgson? Have you ever seen a more pathetic the set of tournament Ooh. performances in England than Roy Hodgson? He's a safe pair of hands. Well, Stephen Parry didn't get them there. Didn't even qualify. Well, that's true. That was an amazing achievement, not getting England yeah. to year 2000. That was, that was stunning. But what this means, and I don't is Steve Parrish an unusually ignorant Premier League chairman? I don't think so, actually. No. I think he's probably average. You know, this is but this is the situation that you've got. You've got a league where it's the, the risk of relegation is now so enormous. The difference between playing in the Premier League and the Championship is so uh, gigantic that nobody can take that risk. Everybody is going to be ultra ultra conservative because the only clubs where you can actually afford to try something different are like the top five or six clubs. They're the only ones. I, I, I mean, uh, you know. Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, and Liverpool. They're the only ones who can be pretty confident they're not going to get relegated. You know? Like Everton finished seventh. Are Everton totally safe from getting relegated if, if things were to go a little pressure? I wouldn't say so. You know? They, they can't really necessarily afford. So nobody can really afford to be experimental or to try something or to give anything time. It's just... So, someone like Parrish just is, you know, when you when you have an absence of knowledge and an absence of of confidence in your own judgments, which is what you've got at, you know, in I guess most chairmen are like that. Combined with the huge stakes of relegation, then you 
that uh, absence of confidence plus huge stakes equals stupidity. That has been going on for years. This, well, this is the quickest ever. I was going to say, it's just that the, the time frame is getting shorter and shorter. It used to be, oh, the, the chairman's panicked. He sacked the manager after 16 games. Mm. <laughs> and that, that's kind of, looking back now, that's how quaint. Yeah. The manager been given that much time to fail. It's just stupidity no, inflation. On, yeah, yeah. stupidity inflation. Joey adjusted for inflation. Joey Barton with a great verdict on Roy Hodgson. Well, this is his verdict. He's got no charisma, no personality. This is Hodgson. Did you see him at the back end of that England campaign? He just looked like he needed to be taken out into the back garden and have someone pull the trigger on him, Joey Barton said on TalkSport. So mm. that was, uh, that's his view. Uh, we will talk uh, to Priya Ramesh and Miguel Delaney uh, uh, shortly about the Boer in a bit more detail. But okay. other things happened over the weekend, Owen. Um, and one of those things, as you alluded to at the beginning, was the game between Manchester City and Liverpool, which finished in a stomping 5-0 victory for Manchester City. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> which certainly brought to an end. I mean, Liverpool had a good recent record against Man City over the last few seasons, and that kind of brought that one to a fairly uh, crushing uh, end. And I think, obviously, that the red card was a big moment in the game because you can't really play the way that Liverpool try to play with ten players. It's an, it's like a numbers game. If you don't, if you if you lost the man, it doesn't work. You can't close down knowing that the options behind you are being closed off because one of them isn't being. There's somebody missing and you, it's, you can't actually do this. I don't, I'm not sure that really justified the way that Liverpool collapsed. No, Jamie Carragher made the point that, okay, sure, you can't do some of what you're talking about there and you certainly are going to find it hard to score goals mm. with, so, with a, a man less against a good team. But actually, the easiest thing to do is to defend because usually you've got a striker playing up front anyway, not necessarily tracking back that much. So you should be able to, if you've got nine players outfield, you, should have, you, sh- you shouldn't just take it as red that we're going to concede a load of goals here. No, you, you know the the thing to do in that situation, if you really think, is okay, let's not let in another goal. And if it was one nil in the second half, then. You know, who knows? Who knows what could happen? But instead, they let in another goal almost immediately. You know, the game was already really unstable before the red card. Uh, and after the red card, it was only unstable in one direction. Yeah, both teams were loose for a while. And then it was yeah. just Liverpool were loose. You know, there was, there was clearly Manchester City were attacking Trent Alexander-Arnold, who, who was getting skinned alive. And they were really going for that. Um, Dion Fanning was at the game and pointed out that Guardiola was actually... If you, they, City knocked a bunch of long balls out of play terrible crossfield passes but they were all targeting that area the alexander arnold zone and pep each time a ball another ball sailed out of play was was applauding yes yes that's that's what we're doing now of course what pep what they should have been doing is attacking ragnar clavan but i suppose he didn't probably feature in the uh, video sessions uh, they probably didn't expect him to be playing but he played so badly you know that they were already, he he'd already kind of helped to give away the goal by the time uh, the red card, which Liverpool are saying decided the game happened. On the other side, you had Liverpool really blatantly targeting Otamendi, who gave, who coughed up a few auto moments uh, before. In, in the end, you know, Mane was gone, then Salah was taken off, and then he didn't have anything to be worried about anymore. Um, but it was a real, it was a real spineless kind of collapse. Like everyone sort of gave up hope, and it was like if they could have thrown in the towel, they would. But that really didn't show. 
a great attitude. Maybe they're just thinking, oh, Champions League, we've lost this. What's the point in really going nuts here, trying to, you know, cling on for a respectable defeat as opposed to a, you know, disreputable defeat, which is what they ended up with. Um, but maybe the experience of trying to defend hard against a totally dominant Manchester City side full of world-class players might actually have been worthwhile. <laughs> you know, it might it might actually have been worthwhile. This is this is the kind of situation you're actually going to be up against. This this is going to happen to you at some point in the Champions League. This is a, this is a situation you're going to have to handle. What happens if you get players sent off again? You can't just give up every time you get a man sent off. Now they don't get players sent off very much. They didn't have anyone sent off last season, and that's obviously because Klopp says do not get sent off because if you do, the whole thing crashes and burns. You know, more than any team ever in the history of football, we cannot be a man down. Um, so maybe he, he works pretty hard on that. In this case, um, obviously they they lost the player, Jose. Well, Jose Mourinho um, has 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 lost a couple of points. Manchester United have lost their hundred percent record um, in disappointing circumstances, I would say, given how basic the goals were that they conceded against Stoke. Uh, and Jose Mourinho was full of, well, first of all, he he was encroaching into Marquez's technical area. He was encroaching all over that technical area, and Marquez told him where to go. So at the end, Jose Mourinho went in to encroach again. And uh, although the game is over, so he can go wherever he wants. And he encroached all over the handshakes of... he he His hand encroached across the hands of all the Stoke staff, with one exception. He shook hands with every man there, with one exception. And then afterwards he said, well, I don't want to talk about that. Stupid people talk about handshakes. Um, it seemed as though he was annoyed that Mark Hughes was, had, had insulted him crudely and had and had and was trying to get him sent off as well <laughs> but uh, so he didn't like that don't think mark hughes would be too bothered <clears throat> no mark hughes seemed quite pleased with himself actually yeah, and he I'm also seeing. seemed pleased because of a good of a good result and charlie adam was 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 doing this interview with like rio ferdinand michael Allen saying yeah well we well actually what we did was we targeted pogba we know he gets attracted to the ball so we just figured we could get around the sides of him <laughs> and it was so matter of fact the way he said it yeah um, uh, but you know, Jose Mourinho has actually had quite a lot to say over the last few days, which you know United haven't played uh, because of the international break. But that allowed him to catch up on some commercial obligations, uh, and he did an interview with the Times for uh, Hublot, his his watch supplier. Listen to this. This is Mourinho taking branded content to a new level. This is Mourinho. This is from Mourinho's Hublot interview with uh, Oliver Kay. I don't like the sea to be flat, says Jose Mourinho. Um, I like to put pressure on myself. I like to take the watch and put it forward. At the moment, it's 2.30 p.m. If I have to be someplace ah, at 3... He didn't actually say this, did he? Yeah, he did. Wow. If I have to be someplace at 3 p.m., I tell myself it's 10 to 3. In my job, too, I have done that. I accelerate the timings. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I always put what, a bit of pressure on it. Did, did he mention anything that helps him in this uh, visualization goal? Uh, he says, I Any don't products? like it. Put a little bit of pressure on it. Timings are a good way to put pressure on myself. So, he, you know, timing is everything. Stay in your lane, Jose. I mean, there are, <laughs> ad, there are people working in ad agencies that you're putting out of business with this crap. It's amazing. It's just fully integrated into, into uh, what could be a plausible Jose Mourinho interview and he's managed to completely saturate it with references to his watch but is it not plausible that he sets his watch see he's not even talking his about that watch. yeah 
I, I know people who set their, set their watch a few minutes fast. Uh, Might have done it myself on occasion. Don't I'd say you're the kind of person who would do that, all right? What do you mean by that? Just I'd say you're the type of person, person who would have a watch that was fast. What, what type of person has a watch? Just someone who wants to be on time for stuff. All right, okay. Well, I'll a take that. I'll, I'll, a considerate yeah. person. Okay, I'll take that. Um, but no, I don't do it anymore. I think I might have done it at, at some point in my life. But when he, he couldn't just talk about the watch the whole time. <laughs> so he ended up saying to Ulrich Hay, uh, he, he mounted one of his familiar hobby horses. Uh, for me, let's be honest and objective. The last three Premier League champions, Chelsea with Mourinho, Leicester with Ranieri, Chelsea with Conte. Which of these teams was the most offensive one? And by, by offensive, he means attacking. Which played more quality football? It was mine. But nobody says. So, okay, that's, that's him. I mean, nobody's, nobody has been having that conversation because nobody apart from Jose Mourinho cares about the answer to that. <laughs> um, but nobody says. But he, he then did an interview with Duncan Castles in the Sunday Times. Uh, I, I'm not aware of any commercial arrangement certainly none of I, I don't see any subliminal advertising in this one it just seemed to be a, a lot you know uh, you, you sometimes you do an interview um, and he and he returns to this team it's something that pisses him off um, he says uh, where is this bloody thing yeah um, he says the past two champions in the Premier League were super defensive teams super defensive teams with a killer counter-attack so be defensive and have a killer counterattack was the way to win the past two Premier Leagues. I know that sometimes that becomes trendy because success makes people try to repeat it, but we try to go in a different direction. Playing the football we think is adapted to qualities of our players. We're not going to defend with seven behind. To play five defenders and two defensive midfield players, seven in a low block, we're going to try not to do. So this is Conte again. You know, it's just like, this is amazing. Why is he... This pisses him off so much. Like, obviously, it was a thing. It was a thing at Chelsea. Oh, you know, Brown was saying, "Oh, come on, really, Jose? Like, we've had ten years of this. Like, defend, counter, battle tortoise. Can we try something different? I've spent a lot of money on this. Please, you know, I, I bring. I sometimes bring people to these games. <laughs> Please, and." Mourinho, obviously, that got the hump, you know, because he was like, well, this isn't football. You know, football is about winning. It's not about, oh, I've got such a beautiful style. That's another thing he says in these interviews again. You know, well, managers, basically managers disgust me who lose and then hide behind, oh, but we played so well. You know, you're a loser. You're just a loser. Um, so Mourinho was always annoyed about that. But he's kind of being asked to do the same thing at Manchester United in a sense. I doubt it's so explicit in terms of this is what this is the way you've got to play because ultimately Edward is a bit like Steve Parrish. He doesn't care. You know what I mean? But the culture of the club is attacking football. You know, that's what that's what people want to see. That's what we like to think of ourselves as playing. So he knows he knows that. But still the way he wants to play is the is the the lesser or Chelsea way. That's the way to win, in his opinion. So it's it's just fascinating to watch this con continual uh like sort of battle that he is. He's pretending that he's going to be playing uh, super attacking football uh, while actually taking pot shots at Conte for playing defensive football, which is actually aimed at Abramovich for putting up with a coach who's doing, who's doing the Mourinho. You see what I mean? There's like so, it's, it, it's kind of like, there's so many little agendas here. It's so multi-layered. Um, but ultimately, Owen, uh, what, it boils, what it boils down to yeah. Is, is Hublot have bloody great watches, Ken? Hublot got great watches, and if Manchester United concede just two more goals like they conceded against Stoke, 
then I expect to see a reversion to full-on battle tortoise for the rest of the season because ultimately this is a game about results and if you get it if you let in stupid goals like that you're not going to get the results you need let's finish today's version edition of the reporting sport piece just a crying big baby but you cannot call it a player a baby Coach. and we never say they are baby. It's just a crying big baby and you cannot call a player a baby. Frank DeBoer's reign as Crystal Palace manager lasted four Premier League games, 77 days. It's the shortest ever managerial reign, certainly with a full-time manager in the Premier League, Miguel Delaney and Priya Ramesh, who writes about Dutch football, are going to give us a little bit more reaction to this now, guys. Uh, I suppose the obvious question, Miguel, are you surprised? Only four games? Uh, not at all, because I think some of the murmurs already started before the season began. Um, obviously, there's a bigger question in terms of Palace, how they could go from uh, from Allardyce to, a, to then a choice like Dyche, then the other extreme and Frank de Boer, where they should have backed a manager in terms of signings like that. But I think there are already questions for the transfer market in terms of the decisions that Boer has made. So there was clearly a lot of dissatisfaction there. Uh, so even before the season began, something wasn't right. And right through the first four games, beyond the results and the football we've seen and the various reasons for that, there was a, there was a kind of a fracture in the relationship. So, no, not, not, not surprised at all. In fact, I'm actually surprised it's taken this long, given how much... It, I, mean, I mean, I suppose in, in these situations, everyone talks about kind of the media chatter and the stories, but with Palace, there were basically leaks coming from every single area of the club, from the playing staff to the structure, about why this was, this was a matter of time rather than... Um, Rather than the board having any chance of staying on. Leaks saying what kind of stuff, Miguel. He talks this guy talks too much about football, we don't trust this guy. Um just more, more so I suppose how I think broken relationships or not broken because I think they've never been intact, but just how difficult relationships were in terms of how uh, how many of the playing staff were not comfortable with the way with with the way he tried to set up in terms of kind of, you know, uh discussions with the board. Uh, players they should sign. I mean, one accusation I heard was that they didn't get uh, Oliver Burke because of uh, hesitation on the board. But again, we don't, I don't know how much of that is true, how much of that is, is, uh, is looking to kind of cover this ultimate decision. But that was one of the stories put out there. But yeah, that it was just ne- never intact. Priya, was it was it uh, ominous from the start for you as well? Well, I mean, it did come as a surprising appointment because, I mean, you think Crystal Palace and you think, well, you know, Sam Allardyce and Tony Pulis and you don't necessarily see that as aligning with the kind of football that um, Deborah plays, which Deborah played with um, Ajax. So it did come as a bit of a surprising appointment, but I think the hope 
um, that you know most people who were optimistic about this had was that the board you know had kind of turned over a new leaf and were ready to support the new manager and were actually thinking in the long term rather than having this um, kind of carousel of managers coming in and out. Um, so there, there was that, and, and I certainly the thing that strikes me is. If it was so fractured from the beginning, like you should have surely done your due your uh, due diligence and done your homework about what this manager's like. And it's not like they appointed him on the back of you know a day's worth of talks. They did actually, if I'm not wrong, they did actually um, deliberate over this. And I think the choice came to um, either Frank de Boer or uh, Mauricio Pellegrino. So given that you have gone with the manager, it just seems very odd. They're right from the start. It's been it's been basically heading for failure, and to you know sack him after four games, I think hints more at the failure of the board and, and the people in charge rather than necessarily De Boer, who of course you know has his flaws. Like I've been a pretty vocal critic of, of his tactics uh, from his time at Ajax, but yeah, I think it's just it's been a bit of a disaster uh, for all parties concerned. Does he pre have a reputation as being a difficult guy to get on with? Well, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say. Um, this, this is the thing. Uh, when he um, left Ajax in May 2016, uh, I wrote I wrote like this 2,000-word um, analysis of his tenure at Ajax. And, I mean, the only thing you can conclude from that is that you can't really extrapolate most of what he's done with Ajax very easily to uh, other clubs. Cause it's just because the environment was very special. Um, he was working with, you know, his friend, his old teammate, in people like Mark Olfermars and uh, Dennis Bergkamp and Edwin van der Sar. Um, so, and, and, you know, obviously the environment of, at Ajax is that even if the recruitment fails, which it did on many occasions, um, where, for example, uh, off the top of my head, when um, Ajax lost Christian Eriksen, uh, they brought in a guy called uh, Leren Duarte from Heracles. Uh, and you know, they, shelled, they shelled out quite a bit of money for him. And then in the end, he didn't promise to, you know, live up to, he didn't really fill the void that Ericsson had left. And it was uh, Davy Klassen from the academy who um, he kind of emerged. It was the same with uh, Toby Alderweireld. When he left, um, they got Mike van der Horn from uh, FC Utrecht. And that transfer wasn't, wasn't a great deal. And um, it, it was academy product Joel Veltman who uh, came up and filled that void. So it was kind of that scenario where De Boer could kind of, you know, use he could lean on the academy for players and for um, um, you know new um, options for his team selection, as opposed to just the uh, recruitment. I I don't think he has that at Palace, um, and and it's just very hard to kind of use his Ajax time to see whether he'd be he'd be a big success at at, at other clubs. It's kind of the thing that happened with Inter as well. Um, how do you go from such a special environment that he had at Ajax and, you know, go to a, a, a club where his bigger expectations, you know, much more under the spotlight. It's not to say you don't have pressure as Ajax manager. It's probably the, the kind of most criticised job in the Netherlands, apart from the uh, national manager, probably. Yeah. But um, it, 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 the, the thing about him at Ajax was, if, you, if we focus on him as a coach, um, it's the fact that even though he's only what mid forties or something, is you know a fairly young coach, but he just he just seems entirely out of ideas. And this started maybe halfway through um, 
the 2013-14 season, especially came to the fore in the last two seasons when uh, PSV just kind of stormed to the title and Ajax just seemed very out of ideas. Yeah. Uh, and it was a lot like watching um, Louis van Gaal's Man United in his last season, just, you know, endless, and you can really see it with Palace as well, like endless passing between the defence, not much penetration going on. Um, and, and yeah, it's just a very odd situation for him now in terms of, you know, if he's looking for another coaching job, how is he going to sell himself after these two, you know, disastrous tenures at uh, Inter and Palace? Well, it's a total disaster, for, you know, on a personal level for him, clearly. I mean, he has, Miguel, managed to break his own record, 85 days at Inter, 77 days at Palace. Um, I mean, maybe he's just taken the wrong jobs. You know, he, he's gone as this sort of Dutch um, football Louis van Gaal guy to, first of all, the home of Catenazio, uh, at Inter, not a natural sort of uh, context, you would think, for for his kind of attitude to the game. And then to Brexit Island, a club whose own fans uh, at Palace were described as not too discerning uh, by Steve Parrish. <laughs> Our fans are not too discerning. At the unveiling of Frank de Boer, who wanted to play a discerning <laughs> style of football. I mean, I mean you know, I, I, again, like we're, we're going to talk a bit more about, about what's going on in a wider context, but maybe De Boer has been foolish in his choice of jobs. Uh, although, I mean, he's gone to two very, very different jobs, which should raise questions. I mean, I think this whole thing, independent of whether De Boer is a good manager, and I'm beginning to, uh, to doubt that, I suppose. I think there are two broader questions here. The first is, is this specific school of Dutch coaching, and I'd be interested to hear Priya's opinion on this, is a specific school of coaching, which is which is arguably probably the most influential school of coaching in football history, but because it's been so influential, but overtaken, I mean, I mean, Spain and Barcelona have basically evolved it, but is that now essentially irrelevant and dead? I mean, it, it does seem to be producing this, this, uh, this almost stream of uh, dull football, like ineffective football. Secondly, in terms of Palace, as you mentioned, and, and what, uh, what Parrish said, there is a question in terms of direction of that club. I mean, I think it's very fair and justifiable that Palace would want to evolve the club and go the next step. But the way they tried to do it was just uh, almost illogical and bizarre because, as I mentioned earlier, they went from, from one extreme and even and two very different choices of coach from, from a Deich to a De Boer. I mean, there surely should have been some sort of halfway house. Or if you're going to employ De Boer, just, you know, fully back him and get in the players he wants. But they didn't do that. And I think he he... Whatever about the question about his management, he was in a difficult situation in that regard. What about that, Priya? That that first idea there from Miguel that this this particular type of Dutch football coaching is a dead philosophy. Um, I think you're right. Actually, I mean, it's not it's not an opinion I disagree with. Um, uh, someone I know, a journalist called uh, Peter Zwart in the Netherlands, uh, wrote an article a few years back about how um, the Dutch school of thought is you know, truly well and alive. It's just not alive in the Netherlands, uh, ironically. Uh, and you can, I think the, the, the best manifestation of that comes in the national team as well. Um, we've gone through, I don't know, three, four coaches in the last um, three years, I think. Um, and and the, the, the weird thing is, there's not much separating the last three coaches, especially since Van Gaal left. Um, I mean, you change the coaches and each coach kind of, you know, has his preferences in the team selection, everything. But it's exactly the, the same kind of performance, it's the same kind of passive um, passing at the back. Uh, very little kind of thinking about about um, balance in the middle. 
and yeah, it, it just kind of doesn't reflect very well, very very uh, well on the on the whole like footballing scene in the Netherlands. And it also has to do with issues in terms of the um, uh, course for coaches in the Netherlands as well. Because I I was actually watching um, Reading, I think in the in the playoffs, and they were pretty reminiscent of uh, Frank de Boer Ajax as well. So uh, you know, Yap Stam uh, coached um, Young Ajax for for a bit before he moved on to Reading. So it is that kind of, you know, concern about whether innovation is stagnating in a country that is kind of prized in football for bringing so many new ideas and, you know, what was once radical um, to football. But yeah, it's just the fact that many other countries now, I mean, you look at uh, San Paoli with, with Argentina, you know, especially his Chile team as well. Um, and, and he kind of went and evolved that. You see Guardiola. And you see all these coaches outside of the Netherlands. And I mean, literally, if you ask me now to name like the best Dutch coach, I kind of have to think for a bit. And then maybe, you know, say Peter Bosch with uh, with Dortmund. Now he did, did a great job at Ajax. And actually, the funny thing about Peter Bosch at Ajax last season was that he did well because he moved that far away from the De Boer model. Yeah. And, and, and entirely kind of radically changed the setup. And I think maybe it, it was only maybe one or two starters from De Boer's last uh, lineup in in the Eredivisie that actually survived uh, um, and and made and you know established themselves as starters for uh, Peter Bosch. And I mean, uh, probably someone like Eric Ten Hag, who's doing a pretty good job with with um, FC Utrecht at the moment, and it's kind of entirely moving away from the Dutch, you know, what has become the Dutch dogmatic way of using the wingers. Uh, just to run down and, and and you know bombard the box with crosses. He's he plays a a diamond a diamond in midfield, which kind of forces them to really think about key areas in the pitch. So it, it is it is a bit concerning in terms of you know just looking at the wider picture and seeing maybe Dutch football is is coming to a bit of a, a bit of a halt in terms of progression, uh, both you know in the game as well as uh, results. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because I was just kind of thinking about the fact that, you know, just three or four years ago, Frank de Boer was being, you know, linked with the Liverpool job, the, the Tottenham job. And it's just kind of sad for him to, to see how much his tactical sense seems to have stagnated and not really evolved in the last three, in the last three years. Yeah, I, want, I wonder, sorry, sorry, Miguel, I wonder though, you know, to what extent this is also a, a Premier League issue because um this this obviously van Hal's uh, project didn't work out the Boers has, has failed immediately um but you know the premier league is a league unlike any that there has ever been before um the current premier league is a kind of a rollerball league on a level that has it's it's literally never happened it's 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 because you can buy everybody can buy fast players strong players the level of athleticism is currently in the premier league i think beyond anything that's been seen in any previous league uh which seems like a that, that seems like a normal enough assumption for me to make given the you know all the money that they can spend on training and fitness and all the sort of you know all the knowledge that there is in those areas now has contributed to a faster kind of a league than we've ever seen and maybe it is the case that a type of football which depends on a lot of passing around at the back is is just vulnerable um in a way that it it, it wasn't previously you know when when this was being devised you know in the 70s 80s and 90s when when this was a really successful style they didn't have to deal with 
you know, these sort of lightning quick attackers all over the field in almost every game that you now get in the Premier League. I mean, even even Parish, see Parish when he was talking about the um, when he was talking about hiring De Boer, uh, he talked about how it was less expensive to buy basically strong, fast players than to buy technically good creative players you could everybody can afford athleticism every team is packed with athletes and any team that wants to play in the De Boer van Gaal way is is just going to get ripped to pieces but that, that is possibly true also I mean we were last season I think when when Spurs got knocked out of the Champions League at the group stage I was talking to someone close to the Spurs team about kind of why this happened given you know they've been such an imposing team in England there. and the point was made that the intensity that Spurs play at that is so successful in England is specifically bad for Europe because so many European teams just sit off them. And in relation to the point you're making about pace and power, I think it is, I mean, so much is made of all these coaches coming into England and all, and, you know, the tactical influence and all that. But, he, but even there, all of these coaches actually end up adapting to this English pace. And I think it's, it's and as regards this whole debate, it's one of the reasons that Guardiola struggled. I mean, in, in terms of how uh, the Dutch model has developed, I would mention a Bosch there. Uh, a week after the Europa League final, actually, I, w- I was at, a, at this conference that Bosch was speaking at, and he was, he d- he was explaining his style um, and how, how he'd moved away from those Ajax principles. But he basically subscribes to this uh, this Pep Guardiola school. And for, for all the criticism that Guardiola gets about how he supposedly coasts on the talent of his players at, at Barca and Bayern, the opposite, act- the opposite is actually true because he tries to specifically mould those players to a system and that, that system is built on those Dutch principles but he's taken it so much further I mean I suppose to explain it briefly Guardiola basically divides the pitch into 20 zones and every single player has to think about where they are in relation to the ball in those zones and I think one of the ideas is that no three players can ever be in a line because that just reduces your, your your passing options but the point being I suppose that that would work much better maybe in a, in a slower European league whereas in England he's had huge difficulties well not huge difficulties but essentially it hasn't worked as well because of the kind of the, the pace of the Premier League and I, speaking from people that know that know Guardiola I've heard that he, he is still stunned at how you can plan as much as you want in the Premier League but yet Something, something can so easily go wrong that as the phrase that was used, the best, the best laid plans can go up and smoke in a, in a second, just because of how generally chaotic the Premier League is. <laughs> yeah, I think Frank de Boer might have just found out a little bit about that. Listen, great stuff, Miguel Priya. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. See if you don't get out with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big teddy boots here, in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so it's soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need your fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! your biggest fool in Manchester. I see you haven't given up total hope, Ken, in the Dutch football philosophy, judging by the colour of your T-shirt you're wearing. I'm wearing an orange T-shirt. Yep. It's got nothing to do with Dutch football. I, I thought you might be supporting the great philosophy of Louis van Gaal and 
Johan Cruyff. Hashtag I stand with FDB. <laughs> uh, You're just wearing it. I happen to be wearing an orange t-shirt. That's that's okay. Yeah. Just 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 no. seems a little too cozy on, doesn't it? Really, mm. you know. On this of all days. Yeah. Mm. I think that is you know just we were talking to Priya and Miguel about that we that is what the Premier League is going to be. The richer it gets, the more homogenized it's going to be. All of the teams are just going to be these big, strong, really fast, really basic teams that are just going to try and defend, defend, smash the ball, uh, run forward really quickly, and that's all it is. That's well, what well, well, that's what we get. Yeah, that's what we get for our money. The world's the most basic football league that's ever existed anywhere. Well, it was won by Leicester City only two seasons ago, Ken. Yes. You could say Yeah, it's arch to... proponents of that philosophy. No, nobody can dare to do anything different now. Nobody can even dare. Uh, the conformity, uh, the lack of courage the, to try different things is, uh, is pretty scary. Barcelona have moved comfortably into the post-Neymar era. Their latest victory was a 5-0 win against Espanyol. Leo Messi, as always, the main man. He scored a hat-trick. But the world's second most expensive footballer after Neymar, Usman Dembele, came off the bench and he set one up for Luis Suarez. Kieran Canning was watching this. Kieran, how good is Dembele looking so far? How close to Neymar standard? Well, we've only seen 20 minutes. He, uh, as you say, he came off the bench. That was his debut on Saturday night, I would imagine um, he will get the start against Juventus tomorrow night in the Champions League. But yeah, for 20 minutes, it was pretty good. Yeah, he set up the goal for Suarez at the end. And Suarez uh, very pointedly made uh, Dembele a big part of his celebration. Uh, Messi and Suarez also congratulated them after the game. So they all seem to be getting on, on pretty well. And yeah, as I say, for, the, for crisis-ridden, shambolic Barcelona to already be four points clear of double European champion, all-conquering Real Madrid. It's, a, it's quite a turnaround in the past few weeks. But in, in many ways, Barca's solution over the past few weeks is also their problem in that, as you say, Messi was the star of the show again, scored a hat-trick at the weekend. He was also by far the, the most important player in their victories uh, before the international break against Betis and, and Alaves. And with his future still up in the air, um, the board, in particular the president, uh, Bartomeu are going to continue to to come under pressure even after that fifth goal scored by Suarez. You have to bear in mind this is you know five nil. Fair enough, it's not exactly the the most equal rivalry, but it is still a local a local derby between Barcelona and Espanyol. After the fifth goal went in, um, cries for Bartomeu to resign rang around the camp now. So whilst things seem to be going okay on the field, there is still plenty of problems off it. Kieran, I guess, I mean, Messi's obviously playing really well, but he is going to need support. And there were signs that maybe Luis Suarez is, uh, um, well, I mean, he, he had a sparky enough performance, scored a goal, uh, helped uh, with a couple of other situations. Um, what's, your, what's your reading of where he's at at the moment? Though? I understand you think maybe he's uh, pushing himself a little bit too hard. Yeah, but I think given so early in the season, Suarez got injured in the the Spanish Super Cup against uh, Real Madrid and was supposed to be out for four to five weeks, which would have ruled him out. Uruguay's World Cup qualifiers last week, this weekend probably the UV game as well. But he kind of forced himself back into contention, um, went to Uruguay initially with Barca's permission, but just to join up with the squad. And then the day they were due to play Argentina last week, um, both... Barcelona and, and the Uruguayan Federation announced that uh, that Suarez was suddenly fit to play, I would imagine, under uh, quite a lot of pressure from Suarez himself. And in that game against 
Argentina he seemed to be limping around rather a lot. He came off injured, again, holding the knee that had, had been injured um, with about 10 minutes to go, but still then played a few days later in Paraguay, played the full 90 minutes again um, at the weekend. And given his age, the number of uh, number of minutes that he's logged over the past few seasons, and particularly the fact that he's had not, not a massive history of knee injuries, but he did have a knee injury just before the 2014 World Cup and forced himself back for that to rather disastrous consequences. Um, I think that to, to be playing on an injury that does look quite, uh, well, if not severely, and relatively important stage of the season um, is quite a big risk, particularly, as you say, that they're going to need him um, throughout the course of the season. Well, it's crazy. It's just insane to do this. And, and I think it, it's kind of, it kind of goes to a bit of a problem that, Barcelona have had in general over the last few years, which is the um, total inability of any of their coaches to tell one of their star players, sorry, you actually need to rest now. You're going to have to sit this one out because the season, you know, I mean, I can this kind of desperation that he has, I could completely understand it for the World Cup. You know, Uruguay playing in the World Cup in Brazil, he was playing against England. He desperately wanted to be part of it and was ignoring the injury. And it was, you know, the World Cup's only a couple of games anyway. But at the beginning of uh, season, it's we're in September. There's going to be forty or fifty more, fifty more matches. It's crazy for him to do this. And Barcelona's coach Valverde should be standing up and saying, "Sorry, Luis, I can't let you do this to yourself or the team. You are going to have to rest until you are properly recovered from the injury." Yeah, I, I do think that what was maybe playing in Valverde's mind was that. In this exact fixture, so the, the the game after the September international break last season, um, Luis Enrique left both Messi and Suarez on the bench, having come back from international duty, and Barca lost two one at home to Alaves. And Barcelona have always uh, been sort of scared by what they call the FIFA virus. You know, these games directly after the international break, primarily because they do have so many important South American players that are travelling halfway across the world and only arriving. Thursday or Friday, and then and then playing on the Saturday, and I think that with that in mind, and with all that's that's gone on the club over the past uh, few weeks, Valverde didn't want to take the risk of a bad result sparking off of more problems. But I completely agree, and especially I think when you look at, at Real Madrid, for example, as a comparison, now Barcelona have got off to a great start; they're already four points clear of Real Madrid. But Real Madrid's on the weekend didn't play any of their players that had played in South America, bar Marcelo, who was suspended for Brazil's second game, so actually came back to Madrid three or four days earlier. Now, fair enough, obviously they didn't get the result they wanted, only drew it home to Levante, but you certainly get the feeling that Real Madrid are playing the long game here um, and using their squad and, and from the experience they've got of last season that <clears throat> if Zidane rotates as he did then, um, they'll be the, the stronger team come the business end of the season. Yeah, well, they definitely have a better squad and they also have a manager who, you know, whatever else you think about the Zidane, he certainly does have authority. You know, if he says you're going to be on the bench, then I guess you're just going to have to accept that or deal with Zinedine Zidane. But, I mean, you, you mentioned that after the fifth, the, they greeted the fifth goal and Barcelona would, <laughs> would chance against the president. Um, usually a celebratory moment, but... Uh, Maybe the only way a five nil could get better is if the president was to resign. I, I understand there were there were, you know, stalls outside the ground, 
saying vote no confidence. People, there, there were pictures of these huge queues as people lined up to sort of vote against the president. Can you explain what was going on there? I mean, in what sense is this a meaningful vote? Is, it, is this just like some kind of a, a, a petition? Is there any way for the Barcelona members to actually force out this incredibly unpopular president um, before the end of his term? Yeah, so the one of the, the the Barcelona presidential candidates from the last election in 2015, Agusti Benedito, has launched this uh, vote with no confidence or sort of censure motion, um, which requires 16,500 signatures from Barca members. Now there's well over 100,000 Barcelona members. It's more or less about 15% um, of the of the membership that he has to get to back this no confidence vote. If he gets those signatures, then that will throw forward to uh, a vote, not a full uh, presidential vote, just a sort of vote on on Bartomeu staying on uh, or having to give up his post as president. Crucially, in that sense, the the amount of votes needed to oust Bartomeu is two thirds. So you need to get more than two thirds, basically voting against him. Um, to get him to leave. Now, I would be surprised if it got to a vote if Bartomeu could survive. What surprises me at the moment, especially, as you say, having seen the you know, photos and videos of the queues of people waiting to, to sign up for this no-confidence measure, is that Benedito said this weekend that he had more or less 3,000 signatures. Now, do you think, thought that for an attendance of 60,000, 70,000 there on at the weekend... Fair enough. Not all of them would be members of a lot of tourists, etc. Et um, he would have got more than more than three thousand. But he, if he manages to get to that sort of sixteen thousand five hundred figure, um, then I think Bartomeu's days may be numbered. All right. Well, brilliant stuff, Karen. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, guys. You seem quite critical of Luis Suarez, there, Ken. Well, I mean, I'm not critical of him in the sense that I think his his willingness to play through injury is admirable, but there's also there's a limit to generally speaking i think it's a good thing to you know be physically courageous and self-sacrificing and all that kind of stuff at the right time yeah you need to you can't just be stupid you know for whatever reasons oh i'm so important they need me for this game against espanol no they don't they don't need you for this game you know you can you could actually rest they're going to need you over the course of the season but you know Look, I suppose it's kind of it's it's irrational in a sense. I mean, he wouldn't do this kind of thing if he didn't have an irrational drive to play. So the thing about an irrational drive is that it's irrational. You know, <laughs> it's not amenable to to reason. Um, just one other thing on before we finish, I'd like to mention this. This is a really interesting interview with Robert Lewandowski. Yeah. Um, in Spiegel magazine, where he absolutely he he hammers Bayern Munich. He he has he's basically saying, first of all, we don't sign good players anymore. We sign average players for 40 million is an average price for a player. We need to get creative if the club wants to keep bringing world-class players to Munich. Um, we've never spent more than 40 million. That's, that's long since been more an average than a peak price. Then he, then he criticizes them for arranging money-making commercial tours. He says, I'm skeptical about these trips, not just because of the strain is so high, but also because I'm not really convinced there are such great benefits to the club's marketing. Um, What's happening in football at the moment is a fine line between regionality and globalization, says Robert Lewandowski. As a club, you have to grow if you want to keep up with foreign clubs. This leads to a big question. Who is the target fan? Do they live in Munich? 
or in Asia or in America. Solving this conflict is one of the biggest challenges clubs face. It leads to frustrations for those who have stayed loyal to their clubs. Uh, these people must never fear they're being used. Sounds like he's on the side of the the real, the real 3D meat space fans who might actually turn up to the Allianz Arena. He says, uh, the people responsible have to develop a feeling for where the borders of reason lie, continues Robert Lewandowski. Do we really need small cameras on beer glasses, as we did for our title celebrations after the game against Freiburg? Do our wheat beer showers now need to be marketed as well? A title celebration is an emotional moment. It should always be authentic. I can understand why fans are annoyed about that. <laughs> Over to you, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge has basically um, told Lewandowski to shut his trap and That's get incredible. back in his box. Yeah. <laughs> well, very well thought out. It's not the usual. Oh, yeah. Anytime a player does normally hammer club, it's because they won't let him leave or something. Whereas this is a little bit more... Uh, Globalization versus yeah. regionalization. With uh, with Leva, uh, it's a shame if he says this. Says Rubenega, uh, loyalty is in the Bayern DNA. We've enjoyed great success. Rather than Lewandowski, who wants crazy spending on superstar players, I share the viewpoint of Chancellor Merkel, <laughs> who says we should regulate and reduce these amounts. Uh, clearly, Robert has been affected by the PSG transfers. Nevertheless, he's employed by us. Uh, anybody who criticizes the trainer, club, or teammates will immediately be in trouble with me, personally. Uh, and he also points out, oh yeah, uh, Lewandowski can determine this himself by looking at his contract. He signed until 2021 with no buyout clause. Uh, he says, he want to, what was it he said? Um, about the, He was unhappy with the preseason tour we had in Asia. He should remember that Real Madrid and the clubs he dreams of playing for spent 24 days traveling with hot weather. That's much more than what we did this summer. So it's kind of an interesting situation there. Bayern's biggest star now is, is Lewandowski by miles, and he seems to be falling out with them. They lost to Hoffenheim, the team that Liverpool ripped to pieces a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they lost 2-0 uh, and are sixth in the league. So it's like their worst season since before anyone can remember. There are Bayern fans who can't remember their team losing a match like this at this point in the season. Um, if the fan is, you know, under 12 years old, they literally probably can't. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I suppose all good things come to an end. As this podcast is doing right now. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Cheers. Thanks so much. How is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.